I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, our favorite moderator here at Socalo, Jerry Sullivan. Jerry Sullivan founded the Los Angeles Garment and Citizen in 2000, launching a community newspaper in the heart of downtown Los Angeles, overseeing its growth into a community newspaper with 25,000 readers weekly throughout downtown and its surrounding districts. Sullivan is an award-winning journalist with experience at daily newspapers, national magazines, weekly business publications, prominent trade journals, and community newspapers. Sullivan's recent professional honors include Best Editorial Comment Award from the California Newspaper Publishers Association and recognition for the Garment and Citizen as the best news source for downtown Los Angeles in a recent edition of LA Weekly. Sullivan is also a contributing editor to NewGeography.com and serves as group editor at LABs.org, a collaborative website featuring contributions from community newspapers covering various ethnic communities in Los Angeles. Sullivan lives in the Echo Park District of Los Angeles with his wife, Lorna. Please welcome Mr. Jerry Sullivan. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you, everybody. And it's my pleasure to make one of the easiest introductions I'll ever have to make because uh, William J. Bratton's reputation truly does precede him here tonight. Chief has been in charge of the Los Angeles Police Department for the last six years or so and ran the New York and Boston Police Departments prior to that and several other law enforcement agencies, including transit forces in New York and Boston that are uh, large organizations in their own right. Bratton's reputation and his peripatetic career have often prompted speculation about jobs in the federal government or overseas, and we reserve the right to ask him about his future plans tonight. But for now, he's here in Los Angeles, and he's here with us tonight, and we're glad to have him. So we're going to get to this. And I just want to mention beforehand, I, I intend to speak to the chief tonight as much as an executive and a manager as a police officer. Uh, but I want to remind the, the audience that if there's areas we don't cover, there will be a Q&A at, uh, at the end of the program. And so you can fill in there. So let's get started with, uh, without further ado. Chief, thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate your time. Here. Thank you. You came to Los Angeles with a reputation as a, an expert in turnarounds. In fact, your book is titled Turnaround. And I just want to ask, what did you find when you got here? Describe the, the situation and the need for turnaround when you arrived at LAPD. Los Angeles Police Department was a classic turnaround opportunity in that it had all of the uh, symptoms of an organization that was in free fall, free fall in a negative way. Uh, the morale of its employees was uh, about as low as it could go, as indicated by the fact that almost a thousand police officers had fled the department uh, in the months preceding my arrival. They were very unhappy with a number of circumstances in the department, particularly the then chief of police, some of the working conditions. And I think there was some residual impact of the 1990s, which were not a very good decade for either the city or its police department. The problems uh, from the uh, riots of the early 90s, the Rodney King situation, the uh, uh, O.J. Simpson fiasco, and then uh, later in the decade, the Rampart scandal. So it was not a very good year for the city of Los Angeles and a particularly not a very good decade for the city of Los Angeles, a particularly bad decade for its police department. So some of the uh, residual negatives of that decade 
were now being felt in the early uh, 21st century. Crime was rising uh, after having declined precipitously in the 1990s, despite all the problems that the uh, department was facing in its public relations campaigns. Uh, it was doing pretty well in crime reduction, but that was lost because of all the negative publicity around the, the riots and the failures in the O.J. Simpson and then Rampart scandal. Uh, the public was uh, not happy with the department, not a great deal of public support for the organization. Crime had gone up for three straight years, and uh, the political climate was also not a good one in that the uh, chief at that time was fighting with everybody, and I mean everybody, and many of the politicians at that time were all fighting with each other. So the uh, political climate in the city was not particularly good either. So uh, that's, uh, for me, a classic uh, opportunity. That's the type of environment I look for in terms of to jump into. It'd be like somebody jumping into the deep end of the pool not knowing how to swim. And uh, that's what I do. I like jumping into uh, crises opportunities because I see crises as opportunity. Where are you now? Uh, well, we could probably maybe rely on your audience during the question and answer to get that opinion, uh, how we doing type of thing. But uh, from my perspective, I think we're doing quite well. Um, I was asked to do three things by the man who brought me to Los Angeles, Jim Hahn, and his police commission, headed up by, at that time, its president, uh, Rick Caruso. And the three goals that I was asked to uh, move toward were, one, uh, reduce crime, the fear of crime and disorder associated with it. And again, this was after three years of double-digit increases. Two, to um, deal with the issue of terrorism. This was shortly after 9-11 and all the concerns that the country and the city were facing. Thirdly, uh, the city was also dealing with the federal consent decree, the largest consent decree ever entered into by any community in the United States which was a direct outgrowth of the uh, Rampart scandal in which the federal government had threatened to take over uh, the oversight of the department if the city did not enter into a consent decree uh, relative to concerns about abusive practices of the department, racial profiling, use of force, inappropriate use of force, inappropriate oversight of uses of force. So those were the three uh, fundamental areas of focus uh, as well as dealing with officer morale. That officer morale would have a direct impact on all three areas. If you don't have a workforce that's focused, that's energized, that's creative, you're not gonna deal successfully with crime. You're certainly not gonna deal with the new paradigm in policing of terrorism and the creativity necessary to, for an urban police department for the first time to deal with terrorism, which was always left to the federal government entities. And then the consent decree was an incredible uh, morale uh, disabler, that the department did not like the consent decree that had been forced upon them. It created tremendous amounts of onerous bureaucracy, oversight, auditing. Uh, none of us like to have uh, anybody looking over our shoulder all the time, let alone looking over our shoulder, under our armpits, uh, everywhere, all the same time. So uh, it was a, uh, another layer of bureaucracy being forced on the department. The Los Angeles Police Department then and now is probably the most overseen police department in America. 
Uh, it's my belief it's the best police department in America, bar none, in many ways. It's crime reduction capabilities, it's, uh, it's phenomenal changes in its culture, uh, it's counterterrorism capabilities, but uh, it is also one that is needlessly overseen. And let me just give you an example of the people as chief of police I have to uh, deal with. I report to a civilian board of commissioners, five commissioners, uh, appointed by the mayor. Uh, they have an inspector general who uh, is their investigatory arm in, as they engage in oversight over the department. As chief of police, I'm the equivalent of a, a chief operating officer. The uh, board controls policy decisions and oversight. Uh, additionally, uh, I report to the mayor uh, who has a direct role in the appointment of the chief of police. Uh, I deal with a CAO, Chief Administrative Officer. I deal with a controller. I deal with a CLA, Chief Legislative uh, Analyst for the City Council. I deal with 15 City Council members, each of whom thinks they are the mayor, <laughs> and uh, oftentimes try to act as such. Uh, I deal with the federal government in the person of the U.S. Justice Department and their representatives. I deal with a federal judge who has oversight of the consent decree, and I deal with his monitors or who his agents, like the police commissioner has the inspector general, the federal judge has his monitoring team that we pay a couple of million dollars a year to. And then I have uh, the LA Times, which actually thinks it runs the uh, Los Angeles Police Department. And, and, and so, this is all things are going pretty good right now. And uh, <laughs> you know, so that's uh, welcome to my world uh, in the sense of, uh, I, I liken what I do sometimes in looking at this audience that many of you have gray on your hair like I do that harken back to the old Ed Sullivan show of the 1950s and 60s. And if you remember on the Ed Sullivan show, among the many acts that he would have, it would always seem the show would end with some uh, juggler out there on the stage trying to keep 15 plates in the air and throwing bowling pins in the air at the same time. And in effect, that's what I do as chief of police. I deal with all of these bodies trying to keep them all from crashing to the floor because any one of them crashing to the floor can cause us needless aggravation and uh, lack of focus on the things that we're supposed to be doing, which is reducing crime, keeping us safe from terrorism, and ensuring that in this most uh, mixed of American cities, uh, in many respects we're more mixed, if you will, than New York in terms of our population base, making sure that we can all coexist together without getting too much under each other's skin or on each other's nerves. So you have all this going on and all these plates in the air, and, and there's some, some good trends going on. You're, you're, the crime rate has dropped consistently uh, since you've been here. The, the news about the crime rate, let me speak to that if I may, because it's a very significant accomplishment of the men and women of the department, and it's a story I get to tell. It's their story, but it's ultimately your story. It's the city that you live in, the world that you live in, the neighborhood you live in, that... Uh, Mayor and I just uh, did a news conference for the 2008 crime figures. For seven straight years, crime has gone down in this city, and gone down uh, relatively precipitously. Uh, homicides down by about 50%, overall crime by about 25%. Gang crime reductions are even better. On a per capita basis, the uh, levels of crime in certain categories, you have to go back to the good old uh, leave it to beaver days of the 1950s and 60s. And that might seem strange because we still see so much uh, violence reported. But if you think of it in today's Los Angeles with gangs, 
guns, narcotics, none of which existed in any significant way in the 1950s or 60s, we have actually have less per capita crime today than we did back then, even with those three influences which were by and large non-existent uh, until the uh, uh, mid-1970s in this city and indeed in this country. So has LAPD turned around, and if so, as a chief operating officer, as you described the job, how is it different to oversee an agency that's in turnaround compared to one that is turned around? The expression that's used by all of the advocates of change in the LAPD, and they seem to be uh, uh, without uh, end in terms of their numbers, that everybody's got a, uh, an argument for the, that the LAPD needs to change. The term that's most used frequently is the culture of the organization needs to change. Yet when you ask anybody what the culture is, you're going to get, depending on the person you ask, a very different definition of that term. Um, the culture of the organization that worked, I think, so much against it, and against its being seen positively by the public, the media, political community, many in the neighborhoods, particularly our minority community, was its insularity. It is a very insular organization, always has been. It is an organization that, in its modern form, was shaped largely by William Parker, when he was chief of police for almost, I think, 13 years uh, in the 50s and 60s. And uh, the style of policing he advocated was, uh, leave us alone, we'll get the job done. And I'll get the job done on the cheap, that uh, we'll have a very small police force. They'll be highly trained, very professional, but they will also be uh, a thin blue line that will not look to uh, be too engaged with the community. That, uh, and I think uh, if you remember the TV show Dragnet with uh, my good old friend and a very significant influence in my childhood days growing up and one of the reasons why I wanted to be a cop until one Adam 12 came along, Jack Webb was a detective, then one Adam 12, you had those two handsome guys in the blue <laughs> uniforms and the black and whites that they look sexier than Jack to me. but. Uh, if you think about it, both uh, uh, Reed and Malloy, the uh, cops in the black and white, and Jack Webb, uh, what was missing from them in terms of all of their engagements with the public? Did you ever see them physically touch anybody, except when they're beating the hell out of somebody, that uh, they never physically touched anybody? It was, uh, whether it was a rape victim, an assault victim, the family of a murder victim, that it was emotionless. There was frustration, there was pent up anger that this had been done to this poor person. But the rules of the game were that uh, we were gonna be objective. We would not engage in an expression of humanity. It was just the facts, man. Just the facts, man, policing. And you saw that time and again, just taking the report. And that was the style of the Los Angeles Police Department. It was a police department that was looking inward and uh, was very distant from its communities. What has changed, I believe, is that, uh, um, and it was a term that you used when we were sitting in the green room, uh, something along the line of uh, invisible policing. What is not fully appreciated about the Los Angeles Police Department, because all of the attention focused on its misdeeds, is just how many good things it does apart from reducing crime dramatically, apart from making this the second safest large city in the country, 
and apart from trying to change a culture that was particularly seen by minorities is not just indifferent, but uh, almost one that was uh, uh, focused on persecution of, focused on uh, inappropriate attention to the minority communities of the city. Uh, there are so many good things that go on in this department that don't see the light of day because it doesn't sell newspapers. The efforts made with our young people, the efforts made to really try to deal with a city that has so many problems that have been neglected for so long, whether it be the homeless, whether it be the minority issues. Uh, it is a department that is in the midst of a sea change in terms of moving from that seeming indifference, that isolation, that insularity, into one in which we are really a very transparent organization. We are very engaged with the community and maybe as importantly, we are of the community and look like the community. And in that respect, uh, we mirror the community of Los Angeles. We're about 12% African American, we're about 40 some odd percent Latino, 30 some odd percent Caucasian, 10% Asian Pacific Islander. The police department of the 50s, 60s, and 70s was white male, five foot nine, 155 pounds minimum weight. That was the department of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Didn't really get your first uh, female officers of any significance till late in that period of time. Uh, so we are a department that looks like the community and increasingly we are from those various communities. So that's a sea change. We have a very large number of gay <coughs> officers in the department. That, uh, so we've come a long way in that cultural change. And it's reflected even in our police stations that uh, you, the taxpayers of the city, have been very generous and supportive of the police department this last decade. You approved a bond measure that's allowed us to just about rebuild the physical infrastructure of this department. We have the most modern police facilities in America. And this year, each month, we're going to be opening a new one, new police stations, new headquarters, new crime labs. Uh, and if you look at those buildings, they're all made out of glass. If you look at the police buildings that you authorized in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, they looked like fortresses. There was no glass. And you couldn't even see in the front door because in front of every front door was a six-foot cinder block wall because the officers inside were afraid of being fired upon by gangbangers driving by on the streets out front. Those days are gone. Take a look at the new $450 million police headquarters down across from City Hall. All four sides of it are glass. And that glass is reflective of the new Los Angeles Police Department. It's a transparent organization. Now, in your book you mentioned that you left the New York Police Department before you got a chance to launch a major initiative, it had to do with respectful policing. With the notion, as I understood it reading the book, that cops go first in terms of community relations. Cops engage and establish that spark of community relations. Is this something, do you feel that you've had a chance to put that into place here in Los Angeles? I certainly do. Uh, the idea that policing is an incredibly misunderstood profession. It is a profession that it's not pretty. We are the only people in society that have authorized to use force, including an up to deadly force. And uh, it fascinates me that as much as you can watch the TV shows and television, cops and a lot of those other ones that are on seemingly endlessly, police pursuits, etc. 
and all that they display about what cops are up against in the sense of dealing with people, et cetera, that when we actually have a actual event here in the city, an arrest being made and force being used, people do react differently to that. It's just, isn't that terrible? Why are they using so much force? And there's still not an appreciation that uh, there's unfortunately a lot of not so nice people out in the world, whether they be gangbangers or others in moments of emotion who, for a variety of reasons, get into interactions with police. And police are authorized to use force. That's why we give them guns and clubs, tasers, mace, handcuffs, training on how to take people down to the ground, because oftentimes people resist arrest. But in this city where we'll have probably about 160,000 arrests this year, that in the course of that year, that we will have fewer than 100 of those people who will receive a serious injury at the hands of the arresting officers. And each of those injuries, categorical uses of forces we refer them to, injuries that might be seen deemed to be potentially life-threatening but uh, may range from a broken bone to a head strike, they are exhaustively investigated by the department, its civilian oversight, the police commission, reviewed by the monitor, the inspector general, and uh, very frequently reviewed by uh, you, the public, through the media, in the sense of oftentimes these events are captured on tape uh, uh, and, and played endlessly on television. So that when I talk about the transparency, one of the things that has changed in policing is that it is very out in the open now. It is very transparent. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry is running around with a camera in their phone or running around with a video camera. And so that the transparency uh, of the world also is impacting policing in a very positive way. That uh, because I hope over time that it will increase trust in police and appreciation that uh, we live unfortunately in a world in which there are uh, some dangerous people out there who don't obey the rules like the majority of people do. And that's when uh, the police have to basically step in. And sometimes that intrusion is not welcome. Sometimes it's resisted. And sometimes it's resisted violently. And sometimes even without a positive action on the part of the police officer, uh, there's violence directed against our police officers. And in the six years I've been here, I've seen countless instances of officers being shot at, uh, uh, ambushed, and assaulted just for the fact that they're wearing that badge of a Los Angeles police officer. Now, just before we came, came out here, I think Gregory asked you uh, about the bad economy. And I thought that uh, very often times a bad economy leads to an increase in crime. And you said, no, not here in Los Angeles. Could you give us a little, and I, I, I think I've heard you speak to this before, but you often have arguments with sociologists about environmental versus policing. Could you just kind of give an overview of that in, in the context of what we're, we obviously all see as a bad economy? This is a great question for me, but I get to get up on my soapbox. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I am trying to pursue during my time in policing, the visibility that New York or Los Angeles provide to me in the sense of the, the very high profile position is it allows me to advance my ideas in a more significant way than if I was chief of police in uh, Bodunk, Iowa someplace. That, and what I have come to believe during my 40 years in this profession is a deeply held belief that police matter, that cops count, that in a democracy, 
the one thing our democracy promises in our Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, is basically personal freedom and personal safety. And our government says that we will have laws and we, the majority, agree to conform to those laws. We will give up certain liberties so that we may have other liberties. And we, the police, were formed to basically control behavior that is authorized by law. And one of the theories that has been espoused by many economists, academics, criminologists, uh, media, political leaders, is that crime and disorder are caused by, let me emphasize that word, caused by the economy. We have an economy in free fall, and that means all those poor people that are going out of the, uh, are losing their jobs and are now going to be unemployed, are immediately going to turn to lives of crime to support themselves. So crime is caused by the economy. It's caused by issues of uh, racism, of poverty, influenced by the weather, caused by the weather. Uh, I rebel against that type of uh, belief because basically it says that because you're poor, because you're black, because you're brown, because you're unemployed, that that condition is going to cause you to become a criminal, to commit crime. It doesn't. For some it does, but for the mass majority it does not. Otherwise, with 10% unemployment in the city, we should be basically in the middle of Armageddon and it's not happening. No, crime is caused by an individual or groups of individuals who either individually or collectively decide to break the law or in a moment of passion or emotion, domestic violence incidents, anger, road rage, end up committing an act that breaks the law. And that's where we the police come in. That we the police exist to control behavior. The challenge for us is to be, control it constitutionally we can't break the law to enforce the law. We can't beat the hell out of you because you broke the law to get your conformity. We have to do it compassionately. The idea being that we're dealing with human beings and while some of the people we deal with may be sociopaths and not the nicest people, we still have to deal with them as people and human beings. And we are tightly controlled as to how we deal with them. And we also have to do it consistently. We cannot be policing in one neighborhood of the city a minority neighborhood or poor neighborhood differently than we might in a majority or a rich neighborhood, that there has to be a consistency of policing. And through our actions, that if we do it correctly, if we control that behavior correctly, we can influence crime rates. So what's been going on in New York, now going on in Los Angeles, is we're using the police to control behavior. So my prediction for you here in the city of Los Angeles is that you're not going to see significant increases in crime during this economic uh, freefall that we're in. You're going to see spikes here and there that we'll quickly respond to and deal with. But we now have 10% unemployment in the city. The national average, I think, is 7%. We were at 7% three years ago, and crime did not go up. So now that it's 10%, my crime rate for uh, the month of January I had an increase in certain forms of violent crime, but the totality of numbers is less than 100. Yet I had significant decreases in property crime. 
And some of the so-called experts would argue that property crime is going to, what's going to go up in time of economic depression, shoplifting, stealing from cars, stealing cars. We're not seeing that, and I don't anticipate that we will. Why? Because we're very good at what we do. You're properly resourcing us. We have a department that's growing in size at just the right time. There are more police. We have trash-free tax dollars. We have better equipment. We have better technology. And we also just have better forms of policing. So the good news for this city, and the real irony is, one of the few bright spots during this period of time, is your police force. You're growing it, and it's growing at the right time because there's going to be a lot of pressures and a lot of things we're going to have to deal with during these very tough times. But the irony is 2009 is going to be the best year in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department. The consent decree is going to go away. Crime will continue to go down. I think the racial tensions in this city will continue to decline. The relationship between this department and our minority communities is improving. You know, where, where we'd like it to be, but compared to where it was, it is night and day. And so there is some good news in the midst of all of this uh, doom and gloom. And uh, it's, from my perspective, if you want some good news, it's in public safety. We're at a time of so much other uh, disconcerting news, if you can feel safer, if you can have reduced crime, that that will hopefully be a catalyst for when the economy begins to turn, that the tourists might come back, that businesses might invest, that people will want to live here. Why? Because first and foremost, it's safe. The tough economy gives you another silver lining, I guess, in that it should help recruiting. It seems a police officer's job is a pretty solid position in a tough economy and typically helps with the recruiting. Will that, uh, do you think, get you where you want to be in terms of personnel? And if so, is there any chance it would allow you to get away from the 312 system? And let me just explain to the, the audience. The 312s has an officer, some officers, who can work three days a week, 12 hours a day. I've heard that bedevils a lot of brass at the operation levels, captains who have to figure out deployments, and it really shortens them up a little bit. Is that something you'd like to do away with, and would the uh, more staffing, more, more deeper ranks allow you to do that? Let me explain a little bit about the 312. Uh, it's not the best. It's not the worst. It's what we have. It's not going to go away. It is a significant uh, recruiting tool. It is, as you might appreciate, in this economy with uh, high gas costs, with many offices living 50, 60 miles away, that uh, the idea of being able to come to work three days out of every six instead of four or five out of six or seven is a, an inducement. Uh, the 312 actually has offices working more hours than if they're working the other shifts we have, the 410 or the 540. It was a shift that, interestingly enough, did not begin in policing. It began during one of the many gas crises here in California where there was a conscious effort on the part of the government to reduce the number of trips in automobiles to reduce the, and improve the air quality, reduce the smog. So the idea was to have pe make, people make fewer trips in their cars, and it wasn't just police. It was a lot of other government agencies. But it has become the... Um, shift of choice in most police departments in California. Uh, it is not going to go away. And in our department, we have multiple types of shifts. We have the majority of our offices, probably 60% work the 312. 
but we have 540 uh, shifts for a lot of our clerical personnel Monday to Friday. A lot of our offices and some of our specialized units work 410, four 10 hour shifts. So um, this is something that a couple of years ago uh, with the previous police chief, the previous mayor, they were fighting tooth and nail about it. Previous chief was not in favor of it. Previous mayor was in favor of it. And the uh, unions uh, got it in their contract. It is in the contract, and uh, I'm not going to waste energy trying to change it because it's just, it's, we're delivering a 50% crime reduction. We have a very high morale organization. So what's the old expression? If it's uh, not broken, why try fixing it? So if it's working for us, uh, let's stay with it. You know, and it's working for us. I think that everyone here just listening to you so far can uh, realize that you have a pretty good grip on data. You're, you're pretty good with data analysis. And it's a lot of, uh, it, it informs a lot of what you do. Where did you pick I, up I, that I, skill? I talk a good game. Yeah? <laughs> Where did you pick up the data analysis skills? The, not so much a skill, but if I possess a skill, it's understanding the importance of data, particularly in my business. And one of the things that I've become known for is the creation of and use of a system called CompStat. That's short for computer statistics. It was an initiative we developed in the NYPD back in the 1990s when we set up a system that we did something unheard of in American policing, indeed in the public sector. We agreed to be held accountable for what we did. And in the NYPD, when I first went in there, I set a numerical goal for crime reduction. That was unheard of. No American police department had ever done that. We set a goal of 10%. I think we got 15%. Next year, we set a goal of 15%. I think we got 18 and 19%. But what we also did was say we would be held accountable for crime going up or down. And the CompStat system was based on four basic premises. Timely, accurate intelligence. Take our crime information every day. While I've been sitting here talking to you, my BlackBerry has gone off uh, four times, vibrating. Every shooting in the city of Los Angeles, every homicide, I get notified about it instantaneously as it's being reported. And then I get follow-up reports as the investigations go forward. I get timely, accurate intelligence about what's going on in this city. And last week when I was in Jordan, 9,000 miles away, my BlackBerry would go off with every shooting and every homicide in the city of Los Angeles from 9,000 miles away. So I'm never away from that timely, accurate intelligence. The second thing we do is rapidly respond to that. We put cops on the dots. We track intimately where are the spikes occurring, where is things getting worse, where are they getting better. And with a very small police force, we're continually moving them around to deal with those peaks and valleys. Thirdly, effective tactics. What works best? Plain clothes, uniform, task forces with our federal and county colleagues. What is the best medicine? It's very, think of it from a, med, a, a, a medical perspective. You're a patient. A doctor looks at you. He talks to you. What are you feeling? How are you feeling? He does a few tests. Timely, accurate intelligence. He gauges what needs to be treated right now versus what can be treated a little later. So he rapidly responds to if you're on the trauma table and you're having a heart attack, he's going to basically take care of your heart. 
and then he'll deal with other things a little later, but he, he needs to basically stabilize you. Effective tactics, you know, might be initially you're going to have that trauma surgeon in the emergency room, but then they're going to bring in the anesthesiologist, they're going to bring in the heart specialist, they're going to bring in the pulmonary specialist. So that's the effective tactics. And then after that, what is it? Relentless follow-up. I want you back next week. I want you back next month. I want to do those continual checks. Effectively, what we've done with American policing is we have approached it like doctors approach medicine. And uh, one of the things I've become known for is that approach, the CompStat system, which is uh, basically just that. It's a medical approach to dealing with crime. In the past, prior to 1994 in New York City, we would gather crime statistics twice a year to send them off to the federal government for the National Crime Report. There was almost no other department in the country that was using the crime statistics instantaneously to direct where our police resources were going. Instead, we were chasing 911 calls. We were chasing the 911 ferry. You call, we'd come. In this city, a million times a year, you'd call and we wouldn't come because there were not enough cops. A million times a year, you would dial 911 and we would not come. So we were promising you something that we couldn't deliver. It'd be like a doctor basically giving you just placebos instead of actual medicine to deal with your, your illnesses. After a while, if you're sick, all the placebos in the world aren't going to make you better. And that's what was happening in LA that we were going into freefall. Chief, let me just wrap up here for our Q&A, but I have one last question for you. It seems that the Bratton is going to Scotland Yard rumor just I think pass through again. If they offered, I'm gone. Sorry. <laughs> my wife, my wife would love to live in London, yeah. and I certainly would. That, uh, it's quite a nice place to be. And the next thing I, I know, know what the six inches of snow they got today. <laughs> the next thing I know, you were off in Amman, Jordan, meeting with King Hussein. Anything you can tell us about that trip? Yeah, there was a trip that, at the invitation of the Jordanian government, were very desirous of in their efforts to keep their country safe against terrorists. They're looking to increase the relationships with uh, governments and police forces around the world. The Los Angeles Police Department has developed quite a reputation in the area of counterterrorism. And uh, so myself and my counterterrorism chief, Mike Downey, uh, at the invitation of the Georgianian government paid for by them, there was no cost to the city. Uh, we went, met with the king. Uh, I was there for 24 hours. I flew in on uh, overnight Friday met with him on Sunday and was back in Washington for meetings on uh, Monday. Mike Downey stayed for several extra days. We're going to be sending a number of our officers to Jordan to learn from them there. Along with the Mossad in Israel, they're probably the top intelligence agency in the world in the sense of dealing with the Islamic terrorist groups. There's also a remark in your book, Chief, I think it's on page 184 of the hardback edition. And you're talking about a police commissioner in Boston who decided to run for mayor. And you say, commissioners are like that. We all think we can be mayors. We are like that. And uh, I thought twice I came very close to proving I was insane by actually thinking of running for elective office. But uh, I basically confirmed my sanity by not running for office. So the fact that I'm sitting here as police chief, that uh, indicates that I am a sane person because I opted not to run for political office. So we, should, we shouldn't expect to see you... Uh uh, any I must prefer there. to be appointed rather than have to uh, basically go through the elective process. Thank you. And I think uh, it's time to get uh, on with the Q&A. Yes. 
Thank you so, very much. Yes, we'll now begin our Q&A uh, portion of our program tonight, and we want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Raise your hand and wait for one of the Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around. My name is Susan Borden, and I'm very pleased to see Chief Bratton here. And you've spoken about the small size of the force, and I wonder, do you see a role for private security to, um, to improve the, the police force? Actually, uh, you could not have public safety in the United States without the contribution of the private security forces. There are about 700,000 public service police in the United States. There are about two and one half million private security officers in this country. We have uh, quite a few hundred thousand here in California. California more tightly regulates and educates and controls its private security forces more so than most other states. And it's interesting during the period of the 1970s and 80s when the country really went into free fall around the issue of crime, the private security forces had the answer. They were focused on the prevention of crime. If you think about what they do, it's about preventing crime from occurring. We, the public police, were focused on responding to crime, responding to your 911 calls, solving crime after the fact, good old Joe Friday would make an arrest, but there's none of you that would not prefer not to have been the victim of a crime in the first place. So the private security sector ironically had it right, and in the 1990s, American public policing embraced the concept of community policing. And community policing as a philosophy has three basic elements, partnership, Police with you, the community. Police partnership with the private security sector. That, that strength in numbers, if you will, as well as a shared development of what the goals and the priorities should be. Secondly, community policing focuses on problems. What is the problem in your neighborhood versus the problem in your neighborhood? Rather than just trying to police the city as one monolithic entity, identify that the city is made up of many different issues and concerns and priorities. And lastly, and most importantly, that the idea of police is to prevent crime as our number one goal, rather than measuring our successes. We did in the 70s, 80s with response time, clearance rates, all after the fact measurements. What changed in the 1990s, we began to understand that it's much more important to measure our success by how much crime we prevent rather than how much we uh, address after the fact. Yes, my name is Deborah. I, I want to talk to you, ask you a question about the backlogs of assault kits that's sitting at the police lab. It was reported over 7,000 are sitting there that have not been analyzed. 200 will never be, be analyzed because statute of limitation runs out after 10 years. So those victims of violence will never see their day in court the perpetrators would never be prosecuted. Your response was, we know that they're there, but we don't have the resources to have the kids analyzed. What are you going to do about those kids? The issue she's talking about, that the issue of DNA is a relatively new concept really coming into the forefront in the 1990s. The Los Angeles Police Department, along with most police departments around the country, had developed a system called rape kits that particularly in sexual assaults, there'd be the ability to take 
evidence samples from a variety of, whether it be fluids, clothing stains, etc., and store them. And with the advent of DNA, there was an ability to actually begin to start identifying individuals who may have committed those crimes, whereas the DNA prior to 1990 could not be drawn from these samples. In the United States, there's a backlog of uh, close to one-half million rape kits that have never been analyzed for both the issue of DNA only came into being in the 1990s, and the workload to do one kit is phenomenal. It's not like you see on CSI where they take a couple of samples and in about 30 seconds it's done. It is extraordinarily labor-intensive. A rape kit might have 20, 30, 40 individual samples of clothing, uh, body stains, each one of which has to go through a very detailed process of analysis just to begin the process of looking at the rape kit. City of Los Angeles, that uh, along with many other cities in this country, the county of Los Angeles, did not devote sufficient resources over the years to starting to deal with this growing backlog. And so in our case, it finally reached about 7,000. And for the last several years, the department sought to get the city council, city government, to authorize funds to start hiring first to get a modern crime lab because we didn't have the physical capacity. We finally got a new crime lab that Sheriff Parker fought for. But then we didn't have the personnel to do the tests. And even as recently as the last couple of days, we've been fighting to get the personnel that were promised to us in this year's budget. But because of the city's budget crises, there was some effort made to not hire those analysts. Finally, with the intercession of the mayor and Jack Weiss from the Public Safety Committee, there was the freeze on hiring was lifted so we could hire these analysts so that we could continue to deal with the backlog as well as keep up with the new cases coming in. The good news on the new cases coming in, the incidence of reported rape in the city is down very dramatically. But DNA is also very helpful to us in solving murders, solving property crime. The promise of it is phenomenal. But it's like everything else. There's only so much money to go around for so many priorities. And so the city council, as they divvy up where is the money going to go, the police department, as we divvy up where the money's going to go, you can't do everything all at the same time. It'd be wonderful if we could. You're building a $4 million building and victims of viruses still waiting for their day. That's correct, because until we built that $120 million crime lab, we didn't have the facilities to do the analysis. Again, it's, uh, you know, in terms of there are many needs in the city, many priorities, and this is one that fortunately is now being addressed. It will take us several years to deal with the backlog because, again, this is not CSI. This is the real world. It, it's very labor-intensive. I'll eventually have over several hundred DNA analysts just trying to keep up with the workload in a police department of about 12,000 people. So we are committed to dealing with it, and uh, I'd like to expand it even more. I'd love to be able to take every property crime and get the DNA samples, because basically that would be very helpful in identifying the burglars. But we start with the prioritization of the murders and the rapes, the, uh, the human victims first, and then we can work our way down into the burglaries and the car thefts. 
My name is Katie Kurtzman. I have, actually, it's two questions about terrorism. One is about intelligence, and if we have time, about first responders. Um, you started working with Jerome Hauer and Kroll in, I think it was January of 2001. John O'Neill was hired by Kroll via Hauer and started working at the World Trade Center on um, September 10th, uh, 01. He died on 9-11, tragically. Um, he was an expert on Osama bin Laden. It would have been very nice if we'd had him around after 9-11. Did you know John O'Neill? knew John O'Neill very well. Really? John O'Neill, for purposes of the audience, was the FBI agent in charge of the Osama bin Laden case files for the FBI. And uh, in many respects was a uh, voice crying in the wilderness for more attention and focus on uh, Osama bin Laden. Literally several days before the World Trade Center bombing, he had left the FBI, retired from the FBI, and become the security director at the World Trade Center. So isn't it ironic that uh, he was one of the victims of Osama bin Laden's attack on the World Trade Center, where he had been the principal person pursuing him around the world? And anyone who's interested in that, there's a book called Looming Towers. That, that's probably the best book that's ever been written about. And, and it's a fascinating story, Mr. O'Neill, and the whole story. Uh, there's also a great movie called Who Killed John O'Neill online. You can see it. Um, 50,000 first responders are sick, and many of them are dying from the World Trade Center dust currently. Um, New York is using the donated money to go to the first responders to fight their claims in court. Um, we've had men lose their pensions, lose their, they're losing their homes, their families are being left destitute from the medical bills that are not being picked up by the city. The first responders' health care needs. What have you done to safeguard the health and safety of our first responders in Los Angeles should we have a similar situation? I've done nothing. <laughs> Quite frank, it's not my area of responsibility. That, uh, Sorry, again, it's a big world. I've got certain areas of responsibility. That is not one of them. We have, using federal funds, acquired hazmat suits for all of our personnel in the event of a chemical or biological attack. But a lot of the issues you're referring to, the, particularly the dust that they're exposed to, uh, sorry, I'm not a scientist. That's not something that I get into. Hi, my name is Raquel Fonte. Um, you might be familiar with the Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act, uh, Prevent yeah, Protection Act of 2000. Um, in 2007, the Department of Homeland Security promulgated some regulations um, for uh, to allow for victims of certain criminal activity um, who cooperate with law enforcement to. Um, uh, apply for certain immigration protections, and um, the the DHS regulations encourage the different law enforcement agencies, such as the DA's office and the city attorney's office, and so forth, to come out with protocols. Um, in other words, establishing uh, a point person, establishing protocols for victims who come forward um, and to facilitate the process um, of of getting. Um, a certification that they're being cooperative in the investigation of the criminal activity of which they are victims. 
Um, so far, the, the city attorney and the, um, uh, the DA's office have come out with policies that speak to this, and I'd like to know what progress LAPD has made in, in setting up uh, a protocol uh, so that crime victims who are, who are immigrants can go to, uh, to the local, have a, have a victim-friendly, a user-friendly uh, protocol in place um, so, that they can, uh, so that they can proceed with this process. We work in cooperation with the district attorney, city attorney, I think you're specifically talking to issues relative to uh, human slavery, bondage type issues, very specifically. And uh, Tony Cardenas, the city council member, chairs the city's efforts uh, relative to that. We work quite closely with him on those efforts. Actually, um, um, Chief uh, Bratton, this is a this is separate than the trafficking than the uh, provisions. This the these are the the so-called U visa provisions that um, are in reference to a much broader range of crimes, um, domestic violence, sexual assault type crimes, and so this is separate than the trafficking issue, which is uh, uh, yes, and and we. Uh, acknowledge the efforts in the in the trafficking um, arena. Um, these have to do with uh, U visas for, again, the, the range of criminal activity is much broader. And if yeah, you can- I'm not personally familiar with it, sorry. Yes, my name's T.L. Thousand. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I covered Northern Ireland for 15 years, both before and after the ceasefires. It's an area where now the majority of the major cities are covered by closed circuit television and it's alleviated a need for presence of the uh, police force there to be on the streets. I've kind of got two questions for you. One is to what degree is Los Angeles or areas like downtown covered by closed circuit television monitored by the LAPD? And second of all, about four or five years ago, Security experts that I've spoken to about the situation here in Los Angeles expressed grave concerns that most of the efforts that had been made in terms of securing LA from terrorist threat were more cosmetic. And you had made the comment at the top of the, the program about part of the LAPD's job is to provide its citizens with the sense that they are safe. And patrolling facilities like utility grids or reservoirs is, 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 not, is more cosmetic for citizen comfort than for preventing acts of terrorism. And I wish you could uh, address to what degree LA has been secured um, in the last four or five years. Along with New York and Washington, which are the two most significant terrorist targets in the country. Uh, we also share, unfortunately, that dubious distinction because of our port, our airport, our film industry, our large Jewish population, that for a variety of reasons uh, that we, along with New York and Washington, share that uh, uh, concern, if you will. To that end, in the six years I've been police chief here, I have focused considerable energy. I mentioned to you the three goals of the, of the LAPD, reduce crime, deal with terrorism, and the consent decree. Uh, I just spent a considerable amount of my time traveling to Jordan in furtherance of our efforts to secure the city. Along with New York and Washington, we are the most secure city in America as it relates to terrorism. I have over 300 officers who are focused on that issue all the time. I actually have proportionally more personnel focused on that issue in my department than the city of New York has with their 1,000 officers 
in a 36,000 person police department. Uh, so one of my priorities has been understanding that the significant threat this city faces, if we were to have a terrorist act, that uh, uh, the damage to this economy would be phenomenal. I've had a fight, an uphill fight, with uh, many members of the city council on this issue who would prefer to see black and whites riding the streets uh, rather than uh, focusing resources on police officers who are sitting looking at computer terminals and analyzing data, continually trying to put together the many intimate pieces that would make up a terrorist network. But uh, as I sit here before you this evening, I am very comfortable that it is not a cosmetic approach, that uh, we spend a lot of money on it. We have an extraordinarily robust preventative component. We had one of the country's first fusion centers, FBI, uh, LAPD, <coughs> Sheriff's Department that we created. We have created the country's prototype for identifying what is a critical site. How do you analyze it? How do you protect it? It's the Archangel Project. We have been awarded uh, uh, many accolades for creating what is the national model that Homeland Security has adopted. We currently are in the process of uh, spreading throughout the United States the SARS system, surveillance uh, uh, and uh, um, um, a system that is intended to ultimately first educate our police officers and ultimately educate you, the public, what to watch for, suspicious activity reporting system, SARS. We have developed the national model that the rest of the country is emulating. So this city, uh, under my leadership, is in the forefront of dealing with the counterterrorism issue. A uh, question about the camera systems, that uh, nobody in this country has anywhere near what the, uh, the Brits have in either London or in uh, Ireland, with the possible exception of what New York is acquiring. Uh, in terms of a government-controlled and coordinated camera system. That we have a lot of different camera systems in this city, many of them privately owned. And indeed, last night, in investigating the hit-and-run death of an 11-month-old uh, infant over in Rampart, as part of that investigation over the next several hours, that we were able to access three different cameras that had recorded the flight of the suspect in that case, in terms of one recorded him parking his car and getting out of the car, another one recorded him moving down the street, and then a third one recorded him uh, in conversation with an individual. So the city has a lot of cameras, many of them in private hands. One of the first things we do when we go to a crime scene is take a look around and see what cameras are there, and then we quickly seek to acquire whatever film might be in those cameras. But we are nowhere near where the, uh, the Brits are. Nobody has uh, what they have. It's just what they faced with with the Irish terrorism in the uh, 70s and 80s. Thank you.